Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Tonight is going to be a little bit more of a my thing on silent so it doesn't keep buzzing at me a um, bit more of a teach than a preach is that okay you okay with that um, try and make that a bit easier this is a little opportunity for you to stretch and have a little have a little get up um, I've we've got some piece of paper here for you to make notes on um, but we'll put a little URL to my notes so you don't have to make notes on everything uh, so it's got all the kind of scriptures and different things it's actually in a spreadsheet which is a bit weird I've never done a talk on a spreadsheet before um, but it seems to be the most appropriate way to try and lay out the information so if you want to come and grab one of these now you can, everyone stand up because then it'd be nice to have a little stretch and then come and grab one of these if you want one Sarah can help you give them out we've got some pens as well um, but this is just so that you can use the paper just to capture there might be some stuff in uh, in this evening that is the for you the thing that you want to be able to take away because there'll be lots of stuff in here but um, there might be one thing that's like yeah actually this is this is for me there's lots of pens lots of paper I think there's enough paper Woo, good okay so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, an exciting romp through Scripture. We're going to look um, particularly at the idea of where um, tabernacles and exiles are throughout the whole of Scripture. And I'm going to explain what, what that means. I think um, as somebody who uh, thinks a lot about worship and why we worship and what worship is about, I think that there is so many different modes to worship. You know, We can worship um, to praise him, to... You can worship in terms of adoration or even uh, warfare and um, looking for breakthrough. And we can, uh, intercession, you know, we can carry on our heart uh, the things in our life or for other people's lives into his presence. Um, and uh, there are loads of different modes of worship, loads of different things that happen when we worship. But I think what's really important to know is that actually that in regards to what worship is really about, it's about fellowship. It's about the person of, of the Godhead. It's about encountering him and spending time with him. Um, the, the, as many of you know, the, um, the Greek word that's used most commonly in the New Testament to describe worship is proscunio. Everyone say proscunio. It sounds like an Italian thing with pasta, doesn't it? Um, it's, it means to come towards and to kiss. It's an embrace, it's a connection, it's intimate. Um, there's also uh, reminiscence of, uh, of awe and, and wonder. And the, in uh, Psalm 2, I think it says something like, kiss the sun lest he become angry. And there's this, this um, image of this victorious king. And, and what would happen is that you would come and you would literally come and kiss um, as a mark of like, you've won, you've done it. And, and there's something as we worship where we acknowledge the fact that he's, he's one. And, and um, I, I love that we get to um, create these kind of spaces for worship as we gather as church. We have the permission and the freedom to do it in this country in a way that we probably take for granted a little bit. But um, I think what I'd love us to, to kind of have as a, a, a general sense tonight is that um, his intention is fellowship with us. That's the whole point of it. And you'll see as we go through, through, through the scriptures in terms of seeing the back and forth that happens, he's always trying to find a way to pull us back into that place where we can be face to face with him and have an encounter with him because he loves us. Um, he's far more interested and motivated by that than being offended by our sin or angry with us or upset with us. He's far more active in redeeming us than reminding us how rubbish we are. <laughs> um, he wants us to see and he wants us to be um, uh, convicted by his Holy Spirit in those things, but it's because of the joy that comes from repentance. It's the joy that comes from turning around. It's the joy that comes from actually stepping into a rhythm that, that looks like him and that is one with him. Um, 
So yeah, if, if we can kind of hold that. So why tabernacles and exiles? And tabernacle is a place, is, literally it's a word that means tent or dwelling. It's like, this is where we live, the tabernacle. Um, but the way that we see it being um, kind of shown up in scripture is that it's the place literally where heaven meets earth. This is what tabernacle really is, is. The concept of tabernacle is really about. It's where heaven meets earth. And we can see the uber version of that, which is, is creation. That He creates the, the heavens and the earth. And then as the narrative continues, that the Holy Spirit is hovering there above the waters with that intent to create and to speak life into being. And, and there's this, that, that is, is in essence a tabernacle. It's the kind of big version of it with planets and cosmos and um, it's the kind of mega cosmos is one way of saying it you know a big the big world the big idea that God has was that he would make us so that he could meet us in that place and he created an environment where he could encounter us and where we could encounter could encounter him um, and uh, the way we're going to look through this is that as we look at the tabernacles, you'll see in every context of tabernacle, there's a connection. So there's, a, there's a space where it happens. There's a, there's a point where, where we, we meet him and we, and we encounter him. There's a, there's a place of covenant. There's a promise that he makes with us. There's a, there's a context to that relationship. There are even kind of rules and regulations that kind of form the boundaries of that relationship. Um, but then also there's a collaboration. So that there's something that he... Um, he wants us to get involved with what he's doing in the world. He's not just there at a distance, but he said, no, no, come and, come and get involved. He trusts us, bizarrely, isn't it? He trusts us uh, to get involved with the things that he's doing. So um, we're going to see that, uh, that idea going through all the different kind of versions of tabernacles that we're going to look at tonight. And then the second thing we're going to look at is the exiles. And the way that we're going to see how exiles, um, kind of, in a sense, manifest themselves is that there's a, a sense that when we're in exile, we're displaced, and that we, we're no longer able to be in that place of connection with him, that we're disconnected in terms of um, we've, we've, we've broken out of the context of that covenant that had been established, and we're disempowered, we're no longer able actually to do the things that we've been called to do, we're no longer able to, to step into the promises and into the... Um, uh, the, the plans that God has for us because we've kind of disconnected ourselves from, those, uh, from, from that covenant, really, from that connection. So those are the, those are the two things. Um, and so everything we're going to look at tonight is going to be um, a type of tabernacle and a type of exile. And then what we're going to do, when we've established a bit of a rhythm through Scripture, we're going to briefly look at what the tabernacle actually, the physical tabernacle, the tent, the place of meeting, what that would have looked like and what would have been part of it. We're going to look at why Jesus is the new tabernacle and we're going to look brilliantly and excitingly about why then we are this new tabernacle and how on earth that works and what that means for us. Is that okay? Is everyone excited about that? I'm really excited about this. I love a bit of a Bible jaunt. It's very much fun. Um, so we're going to start. The first, so when, when we open the Bible, the first book we come to is Genesis. It literally means beginnings. And as you open it, it says this thing. It says, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And he spoke. It was the word. And he spoke. And light happened. This is an incredible thing. It's the thing that, that scientists, regardless of what you think about the process, there's this origin, this, this moment where the space-time continuum, because all of time is based off light, isn't it? I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but it's, you know, it's based, the space-time continuum is based upon the, the, the passage of the, the travelling of light, and so as God said, let there be light, literally, he invented the space-time continuum. Isn't that incredible? And so things suddenly had a beginning and an end. For a God who doesn't have a beginning or an end, he, 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 he even began the whole concept of a beginning and an end. This is incredible. And so um, what we see here is that he makes, he creates this, this cosmos. And with, like any good culture builder, God is doing the kind of same thing at different levels. So you've got the heavens and the earth, and then, it, and it, and then he's, he's, he's kind of got night and day, and he's got um, the, the sky and the, and the seas, and he comes all the way down to a garden, and in this garden, there's a man and a woman, and he brings them together in union. And so he's even in the way that he creates Adam and Eve, and in the marriage of, of, and, and the covenant of those people, he's showing them what tabernacle looks like. 
He's showing them what encounter and covenant look like in that space. And so he, cre- he creates the garden, and in the garden, you have... Which, so the garden in this picture is, is a kind of a microcosmos. It's a little world. It's a little version of how heaven meets earth. Is this, everyone scanning with this? And so the next thing... I'll spend a bit more time on this one just to create the concept, and then we'll bosh through that, okay? But um, in the garden, what was in the garden? What was in the middle of the garden? The two trees, the two trees. So here you have the, the, the first and most basic idea of covenant. Because what, 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 what weren't they to do? Eat the fruit from the, from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But they could eat the fruit from the tree of life. So you've got this choice. You've got this choice. And what, what is being what is being afforded from this choice, which is beautiful, is the capacity for love. It's the capacity for love. Because unless we have a choice to love somebody, it's not love at all. Love is sacrifice. Love is preferring someone else before ourselves. Love is being willing to lay ourselves down for somebody. That's what the greatest love um, is that's how the, how the Bible talks about, it, isn't it? In John, it says that no greater love has someone to lay themselves down for their friends. And um, in the garden, you had this beautiful, simple capacity for love that was given to mankind in the existence of the two trees. Unfortunately, obviously, we broke that. Um, but as part of that situation, as part of that dynamic, what God did was that he gave something to us, to human beings. He gave us dominion and he gave us a collaborative, beautiful commission, which was to populate the earth, to get busy, <laughs> yeah, and to go out and spread out across the earth. He's like, this is your space. Multiply, go for it, do it. Name all the animals. You have dominion. You've got authority. You've got responsibility. And he, he, he never, he never patronizes us. He is genuine and important and valuable, um, collaborative, um, and permissioning uh, roles for us in our life. And he has a, a vision for us. And he has a purpose for us. And he's and he. He, for Adam and Eve in this, in this garden, this place of heaven meeting earth where he, they would walk with him in the cool of the day, he gave them a space where they could rule, where they could thrive. Isn't that incredible? And so there you see you've got the, the connection of the garden, you've got the covenant in the trees, and you have the dominion, uh, the collaboration which was to have dominion and to, and to fill the earth. So unfortunately, we know what happens, don't we? We know that that goes really wrong and, they, and they're tempted by the, the, the snake and they eat the fruit and they're sent out of the garden. And creation kind of breaks at this point. And they're sent out. There's this big, I imagine them being this big dock-off angel, oof, with this big fiery sword and you can, you shall not pass, you know? It's kind of um, guarding the way back into Eden. And it, they were sent out to the east from Eden, um, the relationship was broken. It wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't abolished. It's really important we see this. You know, uh, I've asked, asked some people recently. So you know, what, what happened when, when, when they sinned? And it's like, oh, he just he punished them, and he you know wanted nothing to do with them. Like, that's not actually that's not actually what happened. The very first thing. God does when, they, when Adam and Eve sin is he goes looking for them. So where are you? Where have you gone? Well, I thought we were going to hang out today, get some you know, tapas or something and you know, hang out. Um, and then what's the next thing that he does? They're like, we're naked. What does he do? He clothes them. Yeah, the very first sacrifice, the first death to cover sin was instigated by God in the garden and he killed an animal and covered them. Right there at the beginning was this concept and idea of the way that God covers us and covers our sin in order to make a way for us to be reconnected with him. And so then he sends them, he sends them out from the garden. There's consequence to the sin but he, and the relationship is broken but it's 
not destroyed. That he creates a way for a, a route to reconciliation. Does that make sense? Isn't that incredible? And so that's, this is, the, this is the, the basic construct that we're going to see all the way through Scripture, that you've got God pursuing this fellowship with us. And he, he makes a space where we can encounter him. He, has, he creates a context for that because he doesn't just want us to be robots and kind of blindly follow. He wants us actually to be involved and connected in a way that is born out of love and relationship. And that in that relationship and in that context, he gives us something to do with him collaboratively. Isn't that cool? Okay, so we're going to bosh through some stuff now. Does that concept make sense to you? Okay, so the next... And this is just a lens. All I've done here is we, we, the scripture is obviously so full and rich. Um, sometimes it's just helpful to put a lens on it so that you can then um, uh, have a way of drawing out bits of certain information that gives you a sense of patterns and ideas through scripture. And so this is, it's, it's, it's a way of doing biblical theology, essentially. It's a kind of an a interpretation tool. But what we're going to do is put this lens on of uh, tabernacle and exile and then go through. Is that cool? Cool. Okay, so weird. this next one's a really weird one. I love this one because it is a bit weird. So, so the next tabernacle we see is the flood. And you might, you might think, hang on a minute. Loads of people die. And it's like a bit weird. It's a weird story anyway, isn't it? But the flood. But if you, if you look at some of the big themes that are coming up in the flood, you have this... Um, um, real like signposts back to the whole creation narrative where the wa- you've got the waters and you've got the heavens meeting and then they're hovering on the waters is the, the ark. It's a space where God's like, you, you're my people. You're my people and I'm going to meet with you here. I'm going to give you dominion and responsibility for the animals and the beasts of the field and everything that crawls and does whatever it does. Um, and he gives them this space that is like this lifeboat and this space where God can encounter them and can establish then a new collaboration which was again to spread throughout the earth. You can read that in Genesis 10.32, to spread throughout the earth. And he reinstigates this commission to do that even though they've been out from that place of exile. God is reestablishing a covenant, is reestablishing a connection. Isn't that brilliant? He's, he's pursuing us. You know, we've, we've, we've messed up, but he's like, where are you? I'm coming to find you. Where are you? What are you up to? Come on, let's, let's get back on track with this. Um, the story goes on, and then we see people get really clever. Technology starts to happen. They start, oh, we can make bricks. Isn't that brilliant? And then we get to the place of this Tower of Babel, and they build this great city. Now, cities are interesting, because cities are essentially a mark of culture building because all that culture building is in society is, is, is mankind, humankind, um, working out how to make sense of the world in which they live. Yeah? So a city is the pinnacle of that kind of activity, that we're just making sense of where we are and we're making sense of who we are and make, putting that into practice. So what they did was, like, I know, we'll, we'll find our way back to God. We can do that. We'll, we'll make a tower. And the way that this, was, this wasn't a kind of a, a standalone structure, these, these kind of structures would have existed all over the place. But the point of the structure was that um, it was that mankind could woo the gods down. And they, so at the top of this structure would have been a bed and a table with food on it. I think they assumed that the gods were a bit sleepy and hungry, so they put a bed and a table with food on at the top of this thing, in a sense to say, hey, come, you come and, come, come and dwell with us. And the issue, with, the issue with that is that what we see is with, with tabernacles is that God is always the one that instigates it. God is always the one that, that, that um, makes the space for us. We don't make the space for him. You know, it, it's not up to us to do that. And so... Uh, it's, it's a completely inverted way of creating tabernacle. It's, 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 it's an upside-down way of doing it. And the result is a scattered people, Genesis 11, a scattered people, a failed connection, and this inability to build. Yeah, they were no longer able to, they stay, and it says, doesn't it, at the end, that they, they stopped building. 
the city and, the, and they were scattered out across the earth and their, 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 their languages were confused. And this, 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 there's, a, there's a huge difference between what it looks like to be, to be sent out to fill the earth and to be scattered out into the earth. There's a huge difference in that because it's, the, it's, it's, it's about the um, intention of that but also the connectivity of that as a people on a mission for God compared to a people disconnected, dis- disempowered and um, unable to actually do the things that they were supposed to do in the way they're supposed to do it. Is this making sense? Okay, so next one, family. Family, we, 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 you know, we read, this is, this is beautiful, that, that God becomes known suddenly in Scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's, he's connected to a narrative of, of that the, the bears out the faithfulness and the intention of God to connect with us as people. And so in, in that, you've, you've got this beautiful new covenant that um, um, is to, to tell us to, grow, to go and to grow and to be a blessing to other nations. So he's establishing, in, the, in establishing a family, he essentially establishes a nation that the point of that nation is to be a blessing to other nations. In fact, Isaiah says, doesn't he, in, I think it's chapter 49, um, that it's not good enough. It's too small a thing that we just look after ourselves that we're supposed to be a light out to the nations, to the Gentiles, in fact. You know, even back then, it's like 700 years before the new covenant, Isaiah was prophesying, saying it's not—it's too small a thing that we just look after ourselves. You're going to, as a nation, you're supposed to be a light to the, to the Gentiles. Isn't that cool? Um, so then, um, in terms of where Tabernacle fits into this this kind of family thing, you've got this beautiful moment, haven't you, where Jacob, the deceiver, you know, the, the, the Israelite with who, who was who was full of guile, as it talked about him, the, this this deceiver, within a space where he he lays head on a rock, didn't he? And he had this vision of heaven opening and angels ascending and angels descending on this ladder, and he said, surely this place is Beth. El, the, the house of God. And you have this tabernacle moment of heaven meeting earth. So surely this is the house of God. And he raises up an Ebenezer, doesn't he, to say, this is where God spoke to me, this is where the connection. And so you have this heritage of, um, of a family who have encountered God um, without any there's, there's no construct yet, is there? There's no tabernacle, there's no temple, there's no physical tent or building. And just even in that moment, you have, um, again, God's intention to connect with his people. And heaven is ripped open, he's rendered open, and, and uh, angels ascending and descending. And um, this guy who's basically a bit of an idiot has this beautiful encounter of heaven. But unfortunately... As you know the story, um, they end up as a family um, through uh, lots of different things, but particularly through, if you look at the, the narrative of, of uh, Joseph, they end up in um, Egypt and in captivity. So this beautiful connection and, and establishing of a nation through this family actually becomes ends up in a space which is captivity, where Yahweh's forgotten. You know, they, there's two million people live in, this, in Pharaoh's land, and he has no idea who Yahweh is. They've stopped talking about him. They've stopped worshipping him. They've stopped their festivals and their, 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 their way of living, their way of um, recognising who God is, to the point where the, the guy who, who runs the nation has no idea who Yahweh is, and it's a, a silenced, disempowered people, um, a people who are shepherds, who um, are called to make bricks. There's this whole thing of like this displacement and, and disempowerment that's happening, and they're basically slaves. So, so what happens next? Again, God not wanting to leave them in that space. God comes and he brings Moses, doesn't he? And actually, in this narrative of Moses is where they establish the first physical tabernacle um, and um, you've got the, the, um, the most established, the Mosaic law, the most established idea of covenant as well um, on Mount Sinai. As he says, this is how to live in your freedom. This is how to act it out. This is how to navigate it. You know, The law was never meant to be a, hey, hit this, otherwise you're a bunch of failures. It was the law was meant to be like, hey, here's a way that you can navigate freedom. Don't kill each other because it's, it's rude. You know, don't, don't steal from each other because it's, it's just annoying. You know, don't um, 
And don't do that stuff because that, that's not the best way to live. And that, and that for me is, is absolutely the context of law. And so you have this beautiful thing um, it being established in, um, in this covenant with, with Moses. But that this commission again to inhabit the land. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a, a, the land that I promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to give you this land and you will be a light to the nations. Now, Unfortunately, as they then break into um, the process of, of, of inhabiting that land, you've, you've got um, Joshua and then the book of Judges, and you have this crazy kind of uh, uh, conflict that goes on. And so, again, from a place of tabernacle, from a place of connection with God, from a place of encounter with God, of, of covenant and of promise and, and of collaboration, it it, it breaks through as the people forget him, as they depend on other things and create high places and places where they sacrifice, I don't know, to Jeff, the god of cheese, to be able to get their, you know, um, a good harvest that year or whatever it might be. They go and have these high places, different ways of um, trying to make the gods happy and forgetting that actually there's only one true God. Um, through these processes, you've got, you've, you have a people that are at war, and they've got a people who are engaged in massive syncretism, which basically just means that they're just taking on anything they can from other cultures, whether it's religious practices or sexual practices or different things that are going on. You have all these different things going on, and they're just losing their identity by blurring into all the... the um, the people around them, which is a big deal because essentially you've got Israel as a nation in captivity in Egypt to, in, a, in a culture and religion that was born out of a culture of works. Do stuff and get it right, otherwise you'll get punished. And they were about to move into Cana, which again was a land that was, in a, because this is basically how all religions work apart from Shanti, that basically unless you get it right, then you don't get the rewards. Okay? It's, a cult, it's, a, it's a gospel of works. So in the middle, you've got this 40-year period where he's actually, God's actually teaching, and the desert is actually a really beautiful place because he's teaching his people how to be a people of faith in that space. And so this is what they're forgetting as they, as they step into this, this new land. Um, so you have the law that's forgotten. Thirteen times they go back and forth. Oh, they forgot, they forgot about the ways of God. They forgot this. So God raised up a judge. You know, Thirteen times they happened back and forth. It's almost like in the book of Judges saying, look, this, just, this was just not the answer. Like War and violence just was never going to fix this. It just always... Got, went, ended up back in the same place. Um, and and at the, ver- the very last verse in the book of Judges says this, it says that they did as they saw fit. That the people just did as they saw fit. That they, they were so disconnected from their relationship with Jesus, with, with God and, and with Yahweh in terms of their context um, that, that they, they, they lost all sense of that collaborative mission that God had put them on in that space and just did as they saw fit. Um, so what happens next? You've got David. David, who's, who's, David's really interesting because he was the forgotten um, eighth son of Jesse. Now, I don't know whether you know much about numerology, but seven is the, the number of completion. And so as, as Samuel comes and says, hey, present your sons to me. He, he, he goes, right, yeah, I've, here's my full quota. Here's my seven sons. Surely the king is amongst, amongst these, you know? And... Um, as Samuel goes through and realizes, it's, hey, it's none of these guys. You know, they're all very you know, attractive or whatever. But it's, it's none because that's how they chose kings, that to be strong and attractive. Um, it's true. It's, culturally, that's what they did. And so the idea of it being the youngest and the one who's basically out in the field with a sheep was like, like, whoa, how does that happen? But as, David, as they brought David up, the eighth son, which numerologically, even though seven is the number of completion, eight is the number of new beginnings. And here you have a new beginning. You've got a new way of establishing. He had this vision for the temple that was established through his son Solomon. He, had, he was an idea of them. He was, the way that scripture talks about David is that he, he's a forerunner to the Messiah. In David you see something of what the Messiah is going to be like. The Davidic king. And it establishes a new thing in that space. Uh, a new way of worshipping. A new, a new intimacy with God, a new passion 
for his presence. You know, as he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, sacrificing every six steps. And as he came in, he stripped off the kingly garment so that he couldn't say, look what I've done. And he wore the ephod, the garment of the priest, to say, look what God has done. This garment of worship. Look what God has done as he brings his presence back into the city. And he's like, his passion for the presence was, was unique and was you know, to the point where it says, this is a man uh, after God's own heart. Um, and he has established um, in David a land and a temple and an eternal kingdom. But this is where it goes really wrong. From this point, the two kingdoms divide. And so you have a divided kingdom. You have the ten tribes in the, in the north, and you've got the two, which is Israel, and you've got the two tribes in the south, which is Judah, and, and then the exiles in Susa. So you've got the Assyrian exiles that, um, that dissipate the, the whole of the northern kingdom, um, and it never really finds its way back again. And then you have the, the southern exiles, which is the Babylonian exiles, um, that, uh, for, for, the, for the, the southern kingdom. And, and you'll see where all the different prophets kind of tag into those two exiles. It's where, it's where scripture gets a bit tricky to track, but essentially that's kind of where, where everything kind of connects. And so you have this massive exile with a divided kingdom. They destroy the temple, um, and so they're no longer able to physically do that stuff. And you've got a people that are broken. People that are broken and dispersed, and again, scattered, uh, not sent. Um, everyone tracking with this? Great. I'm taking probably too much time on this. I'm sorry, but I'm hoping, I'm trying to make it sure everything's making sense. Um, so what you're then led to is a remnant. So this is, this is the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, where they're like, oh, let's re- everything's in ruins, let's rebuild the walls, let's rebuild the temple. And they get finance from the king that they were off in exile to anyway. And it's incredible, this story of this kind of resurgence and coming back into to, to, to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Um, they, they met, do you remember this part where they met at the water gate, which is the east gate, and they, and they worshipped and they reconsecrated themselves and Ezra read from the law and, and they, 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 they marked again that we are, we are your people and God, you are our king. And they reconsecrated themselves to God in that space. And there's this renewal of the covenant that happened. But unfortunately, then what happens next is probably, I think, one of the hardest things to recover from. Um, harder than being in exile, harder than being dispersed, was that they established a religion. And between Malachi and Matthew, you've got 400 years silence. And in that time, you've got Alexander the Great who came. So you've got um, Israel ended up being in Roman occupation. Uh, In that time, they established all of the Jewish sects. So they established the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes. None of these sects existed beforehand. They um, added to the law, so you had the Mosaic laws, I think a couple of hundred, a few hundred Mosaic laws, and they added you know, hundreds of extra laws. Over a hundred of those extra laws were laws that um, basically made it really tough to be a woman if you were, if you were a Jew. Um, the, yeah, basically made women to second class citizens. Um, and so you've got this weird religion that's formed no longer a, a people, um, but a religion. And within that, um, rather than uh, having a, a collaborative mission, you ended up with a secularized monarchy and a secularized priesthood. And why that was really hard was because um, those things were men appoint to Christ. And they became so secularized that it was like, they, their, maintaining their status was far more important than recognizing the signs of over 350 prophecies about the coming Messiah to the point that when he came, the king tried to kill him by causing genocide. And when he arrived, the, you know, Herod was like, I'm gonna, we're going to kill all the babies. You know, that's not king who's getting ready for the, for the Messiah, is it? That's the king who's just wanting to maintain his own status. And to the point where when Jesus started preaching the kingdom, Caiaphas and the high priest, what did they want to do? Crucify him. And so the, the very people that should have been ready, the very people that should have recognized the signs didn't. 
because they'd become so secularized that religion blinds us to the life breath of God. And for me, leads us to the point of the, the, the most devastating exile because it had the form of covenant without the life and the breath of it. And it could have been mistaken for connection. Could have been mistaken for tabernacle. But actually was the furthest thing from it. So here's what happens. So we've been from Eden to exile, from the flood to Babel, a family to Egypt, Moses to Judges, David to exile again, the remnant to 400 years silence and the establishment of, of a religion. And who comes next? Jesus. Jesus, the new temple. The perfect union between God and man. And the establishing of a new kingdom. Now we're going to look a little bit more at him in just a second. Um, but what Jesus What's really, and I want you to catch this, is what's really exciting about this is that every tabernacle up until this point gave way to exile. Because every time we failed at holding the space of the covenant. Make sense? So after Jesus, what's the next thing that happens? See? Reconnection. So he brings a reconnection. And what does he establish as he leaves? The church. We, we will never, we will never be in exile again. Because he is a stab. It says in Hebrews, doesn't it? It says Hebrews 12, verse 28. Because he, yeah, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So worship him in awe and wonder. Because he has done it. The thing that no one else could do, he's done it. He's broken the cycle. The cycle of humanity has been broken in Christ. And he has not established something that was just going to break way into exile. He has actually established in the church a new exodus that he has sent us out. So really quickly, let's have a little look at temple. Okay. So if you're coming into the temple or the tabernacle, I use those interchangeably because they're the same function it's just that one served a slightly bigger group of people and was made of bricks instead of um, you know curtains and stuff it wasn't yeah there was no big bad wolf or anything like that um, so as you came into the temple there were three sections this is beautiful illustration um, you've got the, uh, the court of the priests you've got the holy place and you've got the holy of holies here so as you come in the first thing you see is the brazen altar or the bronze altar and this was a fire that started from God but then was um, perpetually maintained by the priests and so this was a perpetual fire so it meant that at any point day or night you could come and you could find at one moment atonement and so this is where the sacrifices would be would be um, would be burnt, and that, so this is this is the place of atonement. Okay, this is this is where sacrifices happened. You then, as you get here, you've got the laver, which was a big basin full of water, and this is where cleansing happened. That they would the priests would wash in this space, and then as they they go through this curtain here. Um, into uh, the holy place, and there'd be all kinds of embroidery, and there'd be, um, uh, it'd be like, like a, a sense of stepping to heaven, there'd be cherubim flying around, and all this kind of, it would have been absolutely beautiful. Um, as you look to your right, what you would have seen would, would be the table of the showbread. There's kind of like a loaf of bread there. And the, the point of this is that was it, it points back to the very original idea, which is fellowship. To break bread together is all about fellowship. And God was saying, let this be a perpetual offering. So let this be an offering that is constantly happening because I constantly want to be in fellowship with you. 
Isn't that cool? And then here would have been the um, altar of incense. And the altar of incense represented the presence of God. And it would have filled this, this place with, 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 with the smoke and a, infra, and a fragrance of his presence. And they were to keep that fragrance going. This, is, this, this, was, um, this was a collaborative space where the priests would learn to, um, to daily underline the whole point of it all. To be in fellowship and to be in his presence. And then over on this side... I'm not going to draw this very well, sorry. Uh, was the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? Yeah, is the menorah. So the menorah was um, uh, a, a single piece of gold. Um, a lampstand would have been filled with oil on the top, and this again was a light that was meant to be um, perpetually burning. And the interesting thing about the menorah is this: what this represents, apart from light, and it was the only only light that was in this space. The only way that the the, um, the priest could see to serve would be um, by the light of the menorah. But also, this is, this is evocative of the tree. And that tree that they could no longer access, the tree of life, was here. It says, here is the light and life of God. And you are no longer exiled from that space because as you step in past the great curtain, which would have had the, a big dock off um, cherubim on it, almost like as if you were passing through the you shall not pass uh, angel um, into, this, into the holy of holies where you would have had um, the thing out of Indiana Jones and the temple and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. The... Uh, the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God literally, physically, actually, at the heart of that community where he dwelled. And once a year, the priest would, would go into that space and this, this here is where God dwelled. So you've got a few things going on here. One is that you've got this purification of light. So out here, you've got daylight. Yeah. As you go through this curtain, there might be like a a bleed in from here but when the curtain's shut basically you've just got the light of the menorah and this collaborative space but then as you go through into the Holy of Holies the only light that was there was the light of God the Shekinah glory the dwelling presence of God in that space now here's what's interesting about the um, this isn't working very well here's what's interesting about the um, tabernacle it was always set up um, <laughs> I don't know why writing it from the side made it tricky to work out what was going on there. Um, it's always set up so that as you walk, as you came in to the Holy of Holies, you came from east to west. Why is that important? Which way were Adam and Eve expelled from the garden? Out to the east. So as you pass into the, in through, past the place of atonement, past the, past the place. Of, of, of purification, of fellowship, of presence, of light and life, you stepping back into Eden. God is re-establishing in everything that he does, everything that he's done, when he's, he's come back and said, I'm looking for you, I'm chasing you down, I'm chasing you down. He's re-establishing Eden. He's re-establishing the microcosmos, the little world where heaven meets earth. That's what he's doing every single time. And so you've got this beautiful thing where, where God is saying, I'm so, so full of grace and I'm so full of that intention of fellowship with you that I'm going to make a space where you can literally visit past the curse into a space where I dwell. And you can connect with me and you can find forgiveness and you can find atonement and want and atonement with me. Isn't that incredible? And this is what God is establishing in the tabernacle. Now, why why is Jesus? We're nearly there. Are you okay? Is this making sense? Are you, are you sure? I don't know if you're sure. I'm not even sure. Um, why why is then why is Jesus the new temple? And there's, going to, and there's, a, there's going to be so many different ideas, but I just want to pick out a few. Is that okay? 
Firstly, there is the new creation. The way that John talks about, about he, if you take the Septuagint, which is the, 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 uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Old Testament version was written in Hebrew, and I, th- it, I think it was in between those 400 silence at some point, they, that's when they wrote the, the Septuagint, which was the, the Greek version of that. Um, and the, 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 in the beginning, God spoke, and in the beginning was the word. It's exactly the same words that would have been used in the Septuagint that John used. So right from the outset, John's saying there's a creation story here. There's a heaven meets earth story here. There's a a tabernacle story here because um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. But not only that, I'm going to say that in a second, So you've got John essentially establishing Christ as the beginning of a new creation. What John does beautifully well as well is that he's so so intent on telling this creation narrative that he he highlights and repeats several times, particularly in the Passion Week narrative, the days of the week. And so he's like, on the sixth day, Pilate says, behold the man. Now, when did we come? When did we appear? When did he speak us into being? On the sixth day. Behold the man. So behold the man, Jesus. And on the seventh day, God rests in the tomb. Yeah? On the seventh day, God rests in the tomb. So what happens on the eighth day, the day of new beginnings? Remember, David, what happens on the eighth day? The resurrection. The resurrection. It is done. It is finished. And on the on this eighth day, there is this breaking out of new life that cannot be stopped, that cannot be stopped, that cannot be hindered, it cannot be squashed or limited in any way. Um, not only that, he's the complete temple. In Jesus, he is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is our purification. He is the fellowship offering, you know. He is the, the, the presence of God. He is the light and life of God. And he is the presence of God. He is God himself incarnate. He's the complete tabernacle. He's everything. That's why it says he, com- he completes it. He wasn't just the sacrifice. He was the whole flipping thing, you know. It was the whole thing. And so there's, there's this beautiful um, completion that happens in Christ. You know, it talks about him completing the law. I think this is a big part of it, is that he was the, he didn't just complete it in that he, he signed it off or, or drew a line under anything, that he actually was the complete law in who he is. Um, and here's, here's an interesting one as well. Is that, you know when Jesus sees Nathaniel, under the fig tree. Do you remember Nathaniel? He's the guy that's sitting there and is, was it Andrew? Um, comes and says, hey, come and see the one that, that the prophets talked about. And he's like, uh, what good can come from Nazareth? What a grumpy man under the, under, the, under the tree. And Jesus comes to see him and, and he says, I saw you under the fig tree in Israelite without guile. And N.T. Wright suggests that one of the reasons why that's so important is because there's this assumption that Nathaniel is there considering the person of Jacob, the Israelite, with guile. Jacob, the deceiver. And so that as the reason why Nathaniel is so quick to go, wow, my Lord, is because you're like, you knew what I was thinking. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, you believe because I saw you, but how to tell you this? you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And he's like, I'm that Bethel. I'm that Bethel. I'm that place. So as you've been thinking about Jacob, the Israelite with guile, and I come and say to you, hey, I see you there under the fig tree in Israel in which there is no guile. He's saying, I am Bethel, the house of God, the place where heaven and earth meet. Isn't that incredible? I love that. I love that. And you see then as Jesus ascends this kind of mega cosmos moment where he ascends into the heavens and his spirit comes to the earth and again this beautiful place of tabernacle. Yes, Jesus is the new temple but we are the new exodus 
It's not exile, it's exodus. In Exodus 40, it talks about how the temple is, is the tabernacle is completed, and it talks about the dwelling presence of God in the, in the temple. And you know, as, as they complete uh, the furnishings, the presence of God fills the temple. It, it, you, you know, you can't see because it's like God is there. Um, what is so exciting about this is that the words, the very words that are used to describe that, the, the tabernacle, which is the skanu, if you're in the Septuagint. Or the, uh, and the Shekinah, which is the dwelling presence of God, the very words that are used are there to describe Jesus in John. When it says that he came and he tabernacled among us, he dwelt, he, you know, it says he put on flesh and came and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, his Shekinah, the Shekinah of the one and only. So he came to tabernacle and to skanoo among us with the dwelling presence of God and that, that, this is how, so, so John's using exactly the same terminology he used to describe the tabernacle in Exodus as he uses to describe Jesus. Now what's beautiful is this. I'm going to read this because it's just really cool. Um, in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, If you're looking for it, it's God's Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, that's how I remember it anyway. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, it says this. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or alien, and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and, rise, and, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built uh, together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And literally, the words that he uses, that you are to become a skanu in which God shekinahs by his spirit. And so the very words that are used to describe the tabernacle, that are used to describe Christ, are used to describe us. And it's not an individualistic thing either, it's a collaborative together thing. So not only are we the skanu and the Shekinah, we're the bride. In Revelation 21, you can see how it talks about that, that the city is a bride. And is it interesting that, that, that it's a city, not a garden? That the greatest expression of human culture is a city. And rather than just say, well, that's rubbish, I'm going to make a really cool new garden, and that's what heaven will be like, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to collaborate with you. We're going to build a city together. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the, that's the new bride. It's something that is, is being built together. Um, and there's no temple anymore. It says that the Lamb of God is the temple. This is the, the place where heaven meets earth. Um, but not only that, we have been given um, a place to collaborate, haven't we, in terms of uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Um, it says that he took back Dominion. He took back the keys. Do you remember that bit? When, he, when Jesus, um, he says he went to hell and he took back the keys to death and Hades. And he has given dominion back to the church. The dominion that we gave away so glibly in the garden, he's given back to the church. Um, and you can read that in Matthew 16, 18 and 19. But here's the thing, this is where we're going to land, is that okay? You're doing really well, this is a long one. Um, In John, John chapter 7, so much easier to type it in on your Bible, on your phone, isn't it? Here we go. John chapter 7, 37 to 39. Uh, it says this, 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, anyone, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, will have streams of living water that will flow from within him. Now, this has always been, you know that song, you know, the stone up deep, deep wells, that one. I've got a river. And you know, amount of people that say to me, I don't really understand that song, which is actually devastating because this is the key to our whole existence. Zechariah says that in those, in Zechariah 14 says, in those days a river will flow from the temple. And he's referencing this beautiful vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel 47. Um, in the midst of destruction, he had a, he, Ezekiel had a vision of a new temple. And from that temple, from the altar, would flow a river. And it would go out through the, which gate? The east gate. So out to the east, out to the place of desolation, out to the place of exile, would flow a river from the temple, from the place of God's presence. And it would be ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, and so deep that you can't even stand up in it. And as that river flows, it would bring life. It would br- I've got an apple tree in my garden, and once a year it spits up some apples. But this is talking about the kind of life where every month the trees would bear fruit. That the leaves of the trees would be for the healing of the nations. That the river would flow out into the dead sea. A sea so salty that fish can't even live there. And it would flow out and it would make the salt water fresh. And life would come. That his presence is flowing out from the place of of the tabernacle into the place of exile to bring life. And that's what flows from us. That's what's in us. When we say yes to Christ, he brings a river that literally flows from our bellies because who's the temple now? Who's the tabernacle? We are. The tabernacle of flesh and from us flows a river. And I love how in Revelation ties it all up. In Revelation 22, 1 to 5, it says that the, 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 the river will flow out and it will the, the leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nations and then the curse will be lifted from the land and literally Eden is being restored and so I don't know whether you feel like you could change the world right now and I don't know whether you, we can what I know is that we can change our world and you have been, and we have been sent out. We have already been deployed. We have already been given a space, a jurisdiction. We've already been given a place to go. And whether you're a kid and you go to school and you've got the space at family, whether you, um, you know, work in government or in education, whether you um, are in a service industry or whatever it is that you do, you have a river that is flowing out from you to bring life. Um, and so I believe that the way that the church is called to change the world is that we change our own world. We change the space that we inhabit. We change the realm of our, of our influence because there is something unstoppable flowing from us. We will never, ever be in exile again. There is something that, that when Jesus said, it is finished, this is what he was talking about. This whole back and forth and brokenness and disconnection and breaking of covenants. Now I'm establishing a new covenant. It says, and of the power of his government, there will be no end. You know, it says that in Isaiah chapter 9. And it's true. There will be no end to what Jesus has established. It will, ne- will never go back again. Never. All that's happening is that we are being sent out, that we are a new exodus with life flowing from our bodies. And I feel like there's a, a space where we either assume that God isn't interested in an 
in our space. Or even, and I don't know whether this is worse or not, but that we assume that God has no right to influence our space. Um, but I want to I call us out and, and say, be the kind of people that live in the fullness of what God has achieved for you. We no longer have to take animals and make messy sacrifices. He literally says, if anyone who believes in my name will not perish but have eternal life. And he has called us into a space of grace. And I I just want to honour you for where you are, honour the the places where you work, honour the the families that you're part of, honour the communities that you're part of, because in those spaces, you can bring life. You can bring life. And I know that sounds potentially a bit subjective, but I want to I want to leave you this one with this one thought. What if, what if you were able to take one thing? What if you were able to be one thing in a situation? Maybe it's just to be positive in a negative workspace. What if it's to be a listener to somebody who is lonely? You know, what, what is the one thing that God can call you to do? Because because you are so familiar with yourself that familiarity can breed contempt. But let me tell you this, that, that repetition builds culture. And for you to be in someone's life, repeating love, repeating hope, repeating grace, repeating kindness, that will be the, one of the most powerful things that you can do. Because it's this... In, in establishing that culture, you are pushing that river out from you. And I want to, I really, I'm, I feel challenged on this myself. I want to say, what's the one thing that you can do in your school? What's the one thing that you can do in your family that you can repeat? That you can shamelessly repeat over and over again and build a torrent of life in that space? Because that's how we're going to change the world. This is good theology, man. I'm not even joking. (laughs) God has broken the pattern of losing our space of tabernacle and being broken into a place of exile once and for all. Literally, this will never, as we read about this, this will never happen again. And you may feel like you're in exile right now. You're not. You're not. Do you know why? Because exile for them meant that they couldn't access the temple, that they couldn't be a community, that they couldn't activate the collaborative mission that God had got on their life. And that's not true of any of you. No matter where you feel like you are today, right now, you are in his covenant, you are in his love, you are in his grace. No matter, even if you've been a super douchebag, you are in his love. Because we are never, ever going to be in a place of exile again. Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the sacrifice that you've paid. That you gave your blood. That the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom because you have made a way and we have an anchor in the holy place Father I just, I just want to pray for this family here and, and say would you, would you help us just know the power of that would you help us experience even today the reality of that truth that you've made a way for us, that we're not out, we're in, that we're part of what you are building, and it's a kingdom that will never end, that is eternal, that is going from glory to glory, never fading, never decreasing. That's what you've spoken over us, that's what you've placed within us. 
And so, Father, help us to live in the truth of that. Let us not be in a mindset of exile when you've called us to be a glorious exodus. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, that we would be a river of living water that flows out into the deadest places of this world and brings life. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God, that we would be people of love and joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of faithfulness, of self-control. Lord God, that we would operate in the gifts of the spirit without reserve, that we would edify the church, edify one another, uh, to see healing and to see um, the prophets being honoured, to see your presence being valued. We want to be like David and to strip off to that garment of worship, that ephod, that lives a life that constantly says, look at what God has done. Look at his love. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his, his kindness. Look at his grace. That others would come and see this great light would come and drink from this everlasting water. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.